This is the Mathematics Education Podcast from MathEdPodcast.com. Welcome to the Math Ed Podcast. My name is Sam Otten from the University of Missouri, and with me is Megan Taylor from Trellis Education, and we're going to be talking about her article that's a research commentary in the Journal for Research in Mathematics Education. That commentary piece is called From Effective Curricula Toward Effective Curriculum Use, and that's published in Volume 47 of JRME. And I should say that Megan wrote that while she was at Sonoma State University, but currently she is working as the founder of Trellis Education at trelliseducation.org. So Megan, thanks so much for being here to talk with me. Thanks, Sam. It's a pleasure. So before we get into the discussion of that distinction between uh, effective curricula and effective curriculum use, which is a really interesting area and it's related to some of the thinking that I've been doing as well. But before then, Megan, I always like to start by putting people on the map. Where did you do your graduate studies, and what was the focus of your dissertation back when you were in grad school? Yeah, so I um, did my doctorate work at Stanford University. I worked with Aki Murata and Joe Bowler and Hilda Borko, and um, the focus of my research there was on effective curriculum use, and specifically how teachers make adaptations to curricula that they're using that are more effective for facilitating learning or not. Then I did a postdoc out in Boston at Harvard University with John Starr, looking at uh, middle school mathematics and technology use, and found myself at the great Sonoma State University for three years back in California as uh, faculty in the School of Education. Mm-hmm. So you've been thinking about effective curriculum use for quite a while, but rather than in Jeremy, rather than reporting the findings of your dissertation, for example, you really are bringing up just a conceptual idea about how we as a field think about curricula, think about teaching, and then think about curricula and teaching together. So I wanted to go back to the beginning of how do you characterize the existing work on, for example, curriculum effectiveness, and what do you think are some of the limitations of that existing work on curriculum effectiveness, like looking at you know, if this textbook series has, you know, good potential for learning games and that sort of study? Yeah, I mean, so basically, I think there's a, a big segment of research in this area that argues that curricula matter. And when we're measuring what makes one set of materials better than another, that's really difficult because there's a huge number of variables. And so research in that field tends to focus on a specific aspect of a curriculum that by definition won't generalize to claims about the curriculum as a whole. The example that I give in the commentary is about worked examples, but another example might be rich tasks or open-ended tasks, what um, the task analysis guide authors might call doing mathematics tasks. College preparatory mathematics gold medal problems, former gold medal problems were an example of those, or even the problems driving the IMP curricula, or even now I think the smarter balanced performance tasks are examples of these kinds of tasks. And we have some interesting and important evidence that these tasks are important for developing things we care about in students like the mathematical practices or, of course, content-specific goals. But from existing research, it would be tough to say that any curricula using or based on tasks like these with particular features is better than a curriculum without. And the big reason why is because the teacher matters too. 
And so I think the the field then there's kind of this other huge block of, of researchers who say, well, yeah, teachers matter. They're always going to matter and they're always going to matter most. And really the teachers matter more than any curriculum and will always matter more than any curriculum because they're the ultimate arbiters of what is taught and how. Mm-hmm. And so even the quote unquote best curriculum materials will need to be skillfully adapted based on the context in which they're used and the students being served. And I think, you know, some variation of the phrase, teachers matter more than any other school-based factor on student achievement, gets thrown around a lot. And there's a great deal of empirical research behind it. So some research programs have decided to identify the things effective teachers do, irrespective of type of curriculum materials they use that make them effective. A, A great example of this is teaching works, that has defined 19 high leverage teaching practices that are intended to cut across content and curriculum and context and specify a starting place for what skilled beginning teachers should know and be able to do. And there are planning and teaching and curriculum use practices in there. Practice-based teacher preparation is big in the U.S. right now for these reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. But I think the problem is that teachers are still and should be using curriculum materials of myriad forms and myriad ways. And so there seems to be an interaction between curriculum and curriculum use that we still just fundamentally don't know a lot about and aren't focusing on. So to make sure I'm wrapping my head around this, and I think it might be connected with some conversations we've been having here at the University of Missouri. So I'm imagining a set of curriculum materials that maybe have a lot of rich, cognitively demanding tasks. Like you were saying, we think that there's some evidence that those help support student learning, or maybe they have, you know, great incorporation of technology resources. And so we can look at these curriculum materials and we think that we see very promising features of them. But what you're saying is we can't from that conclude that those are effective curriculum materials or more effective than other ones because the teaching is so important and how they're enacted is so important. And what I think about and what we've been talking about here is perhaps the curriculum materials with really great features are also the ones that are very hard to enact well. And so you end up with teachers that kind of mangle them or don't really enact them in a way that lives up to their potential. And maybe that's actually worse than having a mediocre set of curriculum materials that are implemented well. And so because of that possibility, that's maybe why we can't just base strong claims on just the curriculum features themselves. Is that kind of on the same page of what you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I was just talking to a colleague the other day where I was saying I would take a skilled teacher with a lacking curriculum over a, you know, great, whatever that means, curriculum in the hands of a developing teacher any day. But you know, this is really a not best case scenario, right? Mm -hmm. What if we understood so much about how teachers enacting these high leverage curriculum use practices using high leverage curricula that we started new teachers from the get-go learning this as, as exemplary teaching? And as you say, then we could kind of get away from any teachers getting further down the road and not really having the skill to enact these rich Mm -hmm. curricula in the ways that we want them to. Yeah. And I think the way that you're talking about it is really focusing on the quality of the teacher. And then the way that we've been talking about it here is just the challenges of the curriculum materials. And maybe the exact things that could be really beneficial are also what make it very hard to implement. And so you can never get one without the other. You can never get the great potential in the curriculum materials without also having it be really challenging like to, to lead a discussion based on it or to implement it in a high, you know, a way that maintains the cognitive demand and things like that. So, yeah, for us, 
it's sort of, you know, we had the curriculum center here at Missouri, so we're always kind of thinking about curriculum first. But for us, we're just wondering if it's more realistic to back efforts to have moderately good curricula that are easy to implement well, rather than to put all this effort on amazing curricula that are so hard to implement well that there's not really a very high chance of it happening on a large scale. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also the reality is, is that we don't, teachers' trajectories are hugely varied. You know, teachers don't go into a school where we know what kind of curricula they're going to use or how they're going to be expected to use it. Or even if they do, a new superintendent or principal can come in and things can change. So there needs to be some kind of a, a DNA of a of curriculum use in kind of a, a you know at a minimum competency that we could expect from any teacher, so that there's flexibility based into how they use curriculum resources in different ways as they change or as they are given new things to use. Mm-hmm. So in the commentary piece in Jeremy, you articulate the limitations of thinking about a sort of horse race between one curricula and another curricula, and you critique a overall emphasis on just the teaching practices, and you recommend a way forward that you think would be more productive for the field about merging the teaching with the curricula in this idea of what you call effective curriculum use. So I'm wondering if you could just share with us how you would describe that productive way forward that you think would be better for the field. Yeah, I mean, I I think that what calling it a horse race is appropriate. (laughs) We need to get away from a polarization of the problem and of the research questions we ask and accept that this work is really messy. And the research questions that I pose in the commentary as a few suggestions focus on the work of effective mathematics teachers. And I define that in the commentary as those whose students make valued and measurable progress over a specific period of time. And if we focus on those kinds of teachers and how they use curriculum materials, we might learn some really interesting things. So what would it look like, for example, to study veteran teachers who exemplify ambitious teaching, who we know are modeling the kinds of things we want them to be modeling using different curricula? We would expect Mm -hmm. teachers like these to use the same curricula in different ways. So that's interesting. Mm -hmm. We'd also expect perhaps that they'd make some similar adaptations to one another and very different ones in others. So what patterns are evident in the similarities and differences in those adaptations? And, you know, this kind of brings up the question of how much we feel comfortable at all with teachers adapting and how much we're going to put that out there. I think a lot of curriculum developers, for understandable reasons, are not that comfortable with teachers doing a lot of adapting. So where is the, how much adapting should we expect? How much should we encourage? Where's the line? And I think a trajectory of effective curriculum use perhaps involves more adaptation over time as teachers develop expertise in acting high leverage practices, and that should be okay. We wouldn't necessarily expect a first year teacher doing a whole lot of really innovative adapting because they're working on a million other things. But a 10th year teacher who we are using as a model of someone who's facilitating productive discourse and eliciting student ideas really well what kind of adaptations is okay for that teacher to be doing? And then maybe even another question is, what's ideal? Mm. And this would be a way to look at these curriculum use practices. That's the phrase that you use in the commentary paper. And then you talk about how there are curriculum use practices. Maybe they're along a trajectory. Maybe we could look at, you know, discern them from patterns across different teachers. 
But you distinguish between curriculum use practices that are dependent on curriculum and then curriculum use practices that are independent of a specific curriculum program. So first of all, could you kind of distinguish those two things or maybe give us some examples of what you mean by curriculum use practices that are dependent on the curricula and independent from the curricula? Yeah, so I'll give you an example by going up a level. So going back up to teaching works and their 19 high leverage practices, they define those practices as cutting across curricula and content and context. So they want those to be basically not only curriculum independent practices, but context independent practices and content independent practices. If you zoom in, though, you might be able to find and identify some, you know, math teaching specific practices, versions of those practices or Mm -hmm. curriculum specific versions of those practices. Mm -hmm. And so these phrases, the idea of kind of a curriculum use practice that's dependent on curriculum would be something that you would only see or want to see a teacher using with, let's say, CPM because it's very specific to CPM and using CPM well requires this particular practice that maybe another curriculum doesn't Mm -hmm. versus something that any teacher using any curriculum, anytime, no matter what context, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Do you think one is more prevalent than the other? Do you think one is more important than the other? Or do you think that that's uh, something that you need to investigate further to find out? I, you know, I think that's a really interesting question. My gut reaction is that we want to believe there are practices that describe just good curriculum use, whatever that is. But because we aren't yet great at identifying those things or helping teachers learn them, we tend to focus on curriculum specific Mm -hmm. curriculum use practice because that feels easier to identify. For example, perhaps we'd all agree that any effective mathematics teacher would be using curriculum materials to explicitly um, create opportunities for students to talk about their ideas. But current curriculum materials provide vastly different opportunities for students to do that in different ways and to different ends. So a teacher using, you know, CPM, again, to bring that up, a group work based curriculum might not need to or think he needs to employ the same kinds of curriculum use practices to his planning and teaching as if he were using, say, modules from Khan Academy. So how do teachers make these choices and how do they make them well? And what happens when they put the choices into action? I think those kinds of questions are more valuable than kind of understanding or I guess separating curriculum use practices that are dependent on curriculum or independent, even though it's important that we think about both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely hear what you're saying about that. But then there's also the practical side of me that has methods courses that I teach for prospective teachers. And to me, I might plan activities differently if I'm trying to help them develop curriculum use practices that are independent. I'm like, okay, now we can try to work on these things and it can vary and you can take it and use it no matter what curriculum you end up having or no matter what textbook series you use in your future school. But then I might plan a different activity for my prospective teachers if I'm trying to help them develop a curriculum use practice that's dependent on a specific textbook or a specific curriculum program. You know, for me, that's there's different practical implications, even if theoretically we want to just value both of them and look at them together without separating them artificially. Well, can I, you know, there's something really interesting. I had the opportunity. I think what you're bringing up for me is this question of what kinds of curriculum use practices we want new teachers to learn mm-hmm. or really teachers to learn you know, any teachers to learn. And I was just last month in October, um, had the opportunity to spend time learning about the Boston teacher residency's recent shift to using instructional activities, like number talks or connecting representations as a primary vehicle for new math teachers to learn 
high leverage teaching practices that they think are important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's evidence that suggests that IAs are powerful ways for both teachers to develop skill enacting important practices and for students to develop skill in in learning like the mathematical practices. And I, it was really interesting because I had the privilege of observing a first year teacher at a high school in Boston enact a pretty incredible lesson based around an IA. Mm -hmm. And the teacher spoke really eloquently about how she had chosen the task that fit within the IA, a crucial component, but that had the task been different, the lesson would have been much less successful. And additionally, the, she talked about how the cognitive load on her was diminished because she and the students kind of knew the steps of the IA so well, they could focus on the mathematics at hand. Mm -hmm. And in our debrief, we discussed the lesson, the task choice, the power of the IA structure, the practices. And when she talked about her planning choices, she reflected that when she's planning using an IA, her only choice per se is the task. And the enactment of the lesson is almost on autopilot. But when I she's see. planning any other kind of lesson, she feels like she's pulling from thin air and completely lost at what's best, even if mm. she's using a, a textbook lesson. Mm -hmm. So she struggles with timing and goals and activity structure, et cetera. And this brought up so many questions for me about how a more robust curriculum, whatever that looks like, might have mm -hmm. supported or burdened her developing practice. And where would the IAs have fit in a more scripted or regimented curriculum? And what does this mean for her learning? So all kinds of things. Hmm. Yeah, it definitely does seem like the interaction between her, what she's doing as a teacher, and then what the curriculum has kind of set up, or even the kind of curriculum routines or things like that. Like a lot of curricula might have sort of patterns in, oh, this kind of problem, we've seen it a lot before, we know how to work on it. In this case, that is now interacting with her teaching practice and allowing her to focus her attention in certain ways. Exactly. So I think Boston teacher residencies, it seems like they've pretty much taken a stance of we are going to focus on curriculum independent curriculum use practice. And I that's totally understandable. But then what what are the kind of implications of that for teachers as they develop? Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. I'm speaking with Megan Taylor from Trellis Education about her article in JRME entitled From Effective Curricula Toward Effective Curriculum Use. And so to me, the big point of the article uh, that comes through and resonates with me is just this idea of moving away from comparing curricula and trying to identify what the best curricula is and what worst curricula are and trying to move away from just identifying certain features or moving away from identifying certain teaching practices. And you're really saying it's going to be more productive if we look at teaching and curricula together rather than artificially separating them. And I'm wondering in what ways this reframing empowers teachers? Or do you think it does empower teachers to reframe it and to have the teaching practices merged with the use of curricula? Yeah, I mean, I think it's absolutely critical that teachers feel empowered to do what's best for their students. At the same time, I think that we teacher educators don't do a great job of helping teachers to actually enact teaching practices including curriculum use practices that are best for students. So we're really good at getting new teachers to say the right things. You know, the buzzwords of reformed mathematics teaching. Oh, you know, I'm mm -hmm. complex instruction or discourse or cognitive demand or agency or whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's a completely different ballgame to see these things enacted or enacted well. And I think work in cognitive demand is a nice example of this. Even when teachers were given high cognitive demand tasks and know that maintaining cognitive demand is important and can say that, the mm -hmm. likelihood that the cognitive demand is diminished at either the planning or enactment phase is, is high. And, I, you know, the idea of a curriculum-proof teacher that I've written about is, 
I think, interesting in the context of this commentary because defining this person to me feels like the nexus we're aiming for. The phrasing of this is problematic. Um, you know, it's meant to be in contrast to teacher-proof curriculum. Mm-hmm. But the intention is an ambitious teacher that uses the best curriculum resources in the best way. And this, to me, is highly empowering the teachers. But it also feels like a big push. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I wonder if you think, too, that the reframing towards this effective curriculum use and curriculum use practices, do you think that that will strengthen the engagement and the linkages between research and practice? Do you think that we'll be able to take more strides together, research and practice, um, or will it facilitate us communicating and working with uh, the practitioners? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that is another really powerful component of the practice-based teacher education movement right now, because we are seeing a coming together of this, I guess I should say, of traditional teacher education and clinical practice in ways that we haven't in a long time. And certainly, you know, I brought up the Boston Teacher Residency. They've been leading the charge in this work in many ways. Universities like University of Washington, University of Michigan, and Michigan State have been doing some really interesting work as well. And I think that the closer we get to connecting the two, it feels to me like the closer we will be to the real answers that we're looking for. Just hard, (laughs) hard to get there. Yeah, I agree. Uh, it's hard, but I think this is an exciting way to think about it. And definitely, to me, feels more productive than, you know, just trying to fight for one textbook over another textbook. Or even if we have some evidence, you know, of certain textbooks setting up things that we value more than other textbooks, it doesn't seem like that's the most productive way for us to go into the future. It seems like this way of bringing together the teaching and the curriculum and the idea of the curriculum-proof teacher or the idea of curriculum use practices that are independent and powerful, to me, is pretty exciting, actually. I've yet yet to meet a principal who said, nope, we're going to forego the next curriculum adoption because we're going to just keep focusing on practice. Um, There's kind of a sexiness um, and an importance to curriculum that will always be there and and to Mm -hmm. some degree should be there. But I think that we, for whatever reason, there's a trickle-down effect in what we focus on in research and what gets conveyed then to the actual work of teachers in schools as important. And you hear teachers again and again say, well, I'm waiting for the next version of my textbook so I'll know what to teach, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, we need we need to be empowering teachers to say, well, actually, I'm going to be able to, to do a lot of really great things if I use this textbook or the next version of it. Mm-hmm. I would love to have the prospective teachers who graduate from our program, I would love to have them have the confidence to say, no matter what textbook I walk into at my new school, I have some ways to think about using that curriculum effectively, or I can take it and find the good in it or enhance the good in it and go from there. Not that this needs to be mastered when you graduate from a teacher preparation program, but I think if they're on that trajectory toward feeling empowered about give me a textbook, I will know how to use it, adapt it, and bring out the best, you know, learning opportunities for my students. Yeah, absolutely. That would be amazing. (laughs) So I want to give you a chance to speak about Trellis Education, because like I mentioned on the article, it actually still says uh, Sonoma State, where you had been when you wrote the bulk of it. But now you're at Trellis Education. I was wondering if you could tell us what you were working on there in California. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So Trellis Education is, uh, we are developing in partnership with 
teacher preparation programs and school districts, uh, long-term pathways of preparation and support for math and science teachers. And it includes paying for teachers' credentials and later master's degrees and national board certification. And it includes five years of STEM-specific mentoring that focuses on teachers actually developing and showing evidence of their ability to enact um, math-specific core teaching practices that include math and science-specific um, curriculum use practices. So we're, we're learning a lot and playing, playing with that a lot. And um, we have an, a, a really an incredible mentor fellow community, which are uh, is made up of 15 right now uh, math and science teachers from across the San Francisco Bay Area who are exemplary math and science teachers and have made a, a commitment to the first five years of the organization. So we are trying a lot of this stuff out and learning a ton on the ground. That's very exciting to hear about, and we'll watch the progress in the future. And I also wonder, what if you weren't doing that at all? <laughs> what if you were not in mathematics education and were just pursuing a completely alternative career? What do you think that might be? Yeah, you know, I think that I would want to become a like an adventure or a travel food critic, um, just someone who got to travel around the world and eat strange and wonderful and beautiful and novel things and talk about it. Oh, so are you, is this something that's just kind of, you're always keeping an eye out for unique foods or something you haven't had before and then you go for it when you have the opportunity? No. And that's why I think this is, <laughs> that's why I think this would be a good way to push myself in my next career. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I would, when you say that, I would just totally expect that you're somebody who's always trying things and then you'd want to make a career out of it. But really it's just something that you wish you could do. Yeah. It's, it's the wish I could do. <laughs> yeah. When I was in China, we had to kind of decide how much we were willing to try and not try. And I will say most everything that we had was really delicious, but some of it kind of pushed the boundary a little bit. So, yeah, can you give a, can you give me an example of one thing? So on the streets of Shanghai, there's usually stinky tofu for sale, and I will say I did eat a whole serving of stinky tofu, uh, and I, they tell me that's the direct translation. It's stinky tofu. It basically seems like rotten tofu, or that's what you would easily mistake it for. Ooh. But it's a it's a street delicacy, I guess. I managed to eat it, and it was actually okay. My wife never came around to it. The smell was a bit too much. <laughs> I guess you could log it in your brain as a type of uh, gorgonzola or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were definitely some seafoods, though, that uh, were just a little bit too out there for me that I, I did pass on. So. I had to pass on. <laughs> <laughs> But Megan, thanks so much for putting these ideas out into the field and kind of putting them concisely into an article where we can all see them and grapple with them. I know, you know, conversations like this have been happening, but I think it's very useful to have it condensed and articulated this way. So thanks so much for doing that. And thanks for talking about it here with us. Thank you. I think it's important to say that this work has benefited from people like you and many, many, many other people who are really pushing the limits and doing this work out there. So thank you to you and other researchers in this space.